For God so loved the world, John 3.16. Probably the most famous words in the whole Bible. You can see them in a variety of places. If you were watching the Super Bowl, you might have seen what, uh, God so loved the world, or God loves you, John 3.16, on, uh, on a sign. If you uh, were walking down the street, you might see it tattooed on someone's arm. Uh, if you drive through certain parts of the country, you can see it on billboards. God loves you, John 3.16. You can even find it after you have scarfed down your double-double animal style with chilies and tasted that tasty milkshake on the bottom of your cup. John 3.16, which, let's be honest, after an In-N-Out milkshake, I pretty much believe more that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. John 3.16 is everywhere. Uh, even a brand of jeans pays homage to this verse. So why is it so famous? And is the fame warranted? I think it is if John Calvin is right. John Calvin was a pastor in the 1500s, and he said that humans are not easily convinced that God loves them. Humans are not easily convinced that God loves them. Now, that might sound strange to you because I would imagine that if we were to walk out on the street and we were to talk to people and we were to ask them, tell me one thing about God, just one thing about God, even if someone didn't believe in God, they would say, I'm not even sure if God exists, but if there is a God, here's what I can tell you about him. He is loving. I think most people would say that God is loving. And so why does Calvin say that that humans are not easily convinced that God loves them. It, it seems that if humans are convinced of anything, it, it, it is that God is loving, that he loves them. And yet, if we really believe that God loves us, how come when we look out in the world and we look into our own lives, our own hearts, how can we see so much fear and anxiety, insecurity, restlessness. I mean, you would think that, that if we really believed that God loved us, it would actually have a, a tangible impact on our fears, a tangible impact on our insecurities, a tangible impact on our anger and our restlessness. See, I wonder if Calvin might not be correct, if deep down we might wonder if God really loves us. Let's be honest, this concept of God loving us, it can feel a bit abstract, can't it? It, it can feel like, it can feel like, um, like me with barbecue. If you know anything about me, you know that I love barbecue. Except for the fact that I keep going into barbecue restaurants, open, ordering barbecue because I love barbecue, and then I sit down and I'm halfway through the meal and I'm like, I don't really like this. Maybe that's because I'm in California, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I were to return to where I was from because I have this nostalgia about it. If I were to sit down at a meal and think, I'm not so sure I really love this. I'm not so sure I could eat this all the time. Maybe, 
Maybe it's that I love the idea of barbecue, but when it really comes down to the gristle in between my teeth, I'm not so sure about it. And I think some of us have the sneaking suspicion that that's how God views us. That God likes the, and loves the idea of us. But the real us, the flesh and bones us, the us that gets up in the morning, that struggles through the day, that us we're not so sure about. Well, in the face of these doubts, John 3.16 comes to us and screams, shouts. It takes us by the shoulders and shakes us and yells, God loves you. God loves you concretely. The text says that God so loved the world. When it says that God so loved the world, it's actually not talking about God's general affection, but it's talking about God's concrete action. In other words, that word so, Greek scholars have pointed out, it's not talking so much about the, the measure of God's love. Look how much God loves you. It's talking about the manner of God's love. God loves you in this particular way. It's not about a sentiment that God has. It's about a spectacle that he has performed. And what's the spectacle? That he gave his only son. That God loves you by giving you a concrete gift. You know, a lot of people will say that God is love, that God is loving. But here's the question that I have. What form does that love take? How has it been expressed? A lot of people say God is love, but they're not so sure about Jesus. But let me ask you this. Again, what particular manifestation has that love taken? I mean, some of you, you um, imagine someone. We'll just imagine someone, not you, not you. But we'll imagine someone who, who is interested in a relationship. And so they go and they try out one of these dating apps. I hear people do this these days, not you. But imagine you are on one of these dating apps and, uh, and you meet someone and they, they, on this, they declare their love for you. I love you more than anyone else in the whole world. I love you so much. I, I, I could never love anyone as much as I love you. But imagine that this person also never spends time with you. They don't acknowledge your needs or try to provide for them. They don't give you any gifts, not the gift of presence, not the gift of a listening ear. Uh, they, they don't remember special days, birthdays, and that kind of thing. And yet, they love you more than you could ever imagine. Well, I think either one of two things is going to happen. One, you're either going to doubt, and you're going to say, wait, do you really love me? Show me. Make that concrete, or even if they do love you, it's not going to have a big impact on your life. It's going to be very hard to feel that they love you. Unless and until their love comes to tangible, concrete expression. John 3.16 says that God has loved you in a very tangible, and a very concrete way. He has loved you by giving his son for you. 
which means that God also loves you sacrificially. See, what does it mean that, that God gave his son? Well, to answer that question, you need to read through the rest of the Gospel of John. Actually, to answer that question, you need to read the whole Bible. Because the whole Bible is an answer to that question. You should come to the Bible with that question in mind. What does it mean that God gave his son for me? Because the whole Bible is answering that question. But we do learn a little bit in this context because what we saw at the end of the passage last week that, that you looked at with Nick is that, that this giving of the Son at least has its end in the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. In other words, God giving His Son entails Him giving Him up unto death for you as a sacrifice for you. Which means that God did not just love you sacrificially, he also loves you extravagantly. He gave his son. Have you seen the movie Aquila and the Bee? That's about a girl from South Los Angeles who uh, goes and to the National Spelling Bee um, contest, and then I won't give it away what happens. She wins. She's coached by Dr. Jonathan Larrabee, who when he was younger also won the National Spelling Bee Contest. As he's coaching her, there just gets to a point where he decides, I cannot coach her anymore. It started getting too painful. And the reason it started getting too painful, we will learn as the story goes on, is because he lost his daughter, Denise, his only daughter, years before. And it was just too painful, the memory of it. Some of you have been through that pain, the pain of losing your child. God gave his son. And not just his son, his only son. The word only here means to be one of a kind. If you are a collector of anything, then you will know that the rarer something is, the more valuable it is. I mean, if you take two antique cars and you set them side by side, uh, if one model, they, and they're both in good condition, if one model they made you know, 30,000 of and one model they made three of, we know which one is going to be worth more. Maybe you're not a collector, so let me put it in my terms. You're on a camping trip. All right, we're already not in my terms. But you're on a camping trip. And on, you've been forced on a camping trip, right, with me. And over that entire week, there is one cup of coffee. You have one cup of coffee. Now, giving that one cup of coffee away is going to be a much greater sacrifice than if you were sitting in front of a pot of 12 you know, cups of coffee. If I give you one of those cups of coffee, that's not a great sacrifice. But if I give you my one cup of coffee that I have on my camping trip that I've been forced on because it's some kind of ministry event, then that is a sacrifice. We're not talking about cups of coffee. We're talking about the only begotten Son of God. 
See, again, many people say God is love and God is loving. God loves you. But they're not so sure about this idea of Jesus or that that's connected with Jesus. But let me just ask you this. If that's you and you believe that God is loving, I just have one question for you. What did it cost your God to love you? Because the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it cost him his very son. This is extravagant love. But why would God love you in this way? Not true story. I wanted to show Pam, my wife, my great undying love for her. So I decided to make that concrete. I wanted to make it sacrificial. I wanted to make it extravagant. So I sold off our retirement. I sold my finest possessions. And I went out and I bought Pam a koala bear that is in Australia at a petting zoo. And I came in and I said, Pam, I love you so much. I bought you a koala bear. And she said, what? I don't need a koala bear. I need socks. You You might think like, why? I mean, is this just a spectacle? Why would God give his son? And why would he give his son unto death? No, this isn't just a spectacle. He gave his son to meet a need. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, God loves you purposefully. He loves you so that you may not perish. The word perish here is not just simply the word die in the Greek. It's the word for destruction. Because the inevitable fate of all things and persons that are separated from God is destruction. The inevitable fate of all persons who are so focused upon themselves that they refuse God's life and love is destruction because in Him is life. And his love is life. And apart from him, life is disintegrating. See, apart from God, the state of the world, the state of the self, we are in a state of world and self-destruction. And we are on a trajectory of ultimate world and self-destruction. If you watch the Super Bowl, one of the, the ads that was on there was um, the He Gets Us ads. And in this one, uh, you know, there's a fight that breaks out at a school. And then there's these fights here and these fights there. And part of what it's trying to, to communicate is that, that we've come to this kind of political and social climate where, um, where we're back in school with these fights that escalate and escalate and escalate. And then it, it says that... Um, that he gets us and then it says it, Jesus loves the people that we, we hate. And I think that the reason why that was an ad that resonated with people is because we see these 
self-destructive and world-destructive tendencies, just open up the news. Look at the ways in which we are at each other. Personally, yes, but globally, internationally. Apart from life with God is destruction. It's judgment. But let me be clear. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. In spite of what a lot of people think, in spite of what a lot of Christians insinuate, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why? Why did God not send his son into the world to condemn the world? Because the world's condemned already. It doesn't need any more condemnation. It doesn't need any more judgment. Look, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you look out into the world, like the world has plenty of condemnation. Open the news. Look at the latest scapegoat in society. Open up your own heart. Look at, at how, how defensive and how critical we are. Why are we so defensive and we're so critical? Because we know that we are under judgment. And God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send his son into the world to judge the world. He didn't send his people into the world to judge the world and to condemn the world. Because the world doesn't need any more judgment. What the world needs is rescue. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, in order that the world might have life. Eternal life. Which is the opposite of destruction. It's integration. It's health. It's healing. It's hope. It's peace. And it's eternal. It's forever. But if we refuse to accept this life, if we refuse to accept God's gift, then life is a living hell. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only Son of God. What Jesus is saying here, in other words, is saying, without me, you are in hell. Because life without Jesus is hell-like. And when you understand that, that Jesus really believes that, then you will realize that all this talk of judgment and condemnation, will, well, maybe that's not to make us feel bad. Maybe that's actually because he loves us and because he wants to rescue us. 
to save us. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He wants to save you. You might say, well, that's an extravagant gift, Kyle, and I could believe that God is love. I could believe that he's love in that way. I could believe that he loves extravagantly and sacrificially and concretely for other people, but not for me. Not for me. Not for people like me. But notice here the object of God's love. For God so loved the world. There's no boundary here. There's no qualification here. Some of you are theologically astute and you will know that there's a doctrine called the doctrine of particular redemption. It's a precious doctrine. It's the doctrine that the design of Jesus' atonement is that he might secure eternal life for all who are his own. It's a precious doctrine. It's a true doctrine. It's a doctrine that I hold and I hold on to greatly. It should never, ever, 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 ever be played against the doctrine that God offers his son to every single person in the world. That he sent his son in love for every single person in the world. For God so loves the world that whoever, anyone who believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, which means that God doesn't just love you purposefully. He loves you personally. Anyone who believes in him. This word belief is very misunderstood and misconstrued in our modern world. We think about belief as like the opposite of scientific knowledge, as some kind of mental assent to something that doesn't have a rational foundation. But in the ancient world, in the Roman world, this word belief, as people have shown, it has to do more with trust, loyal trust. That's why I think a better translation, if we were going to translate this correctly, uh, with what it's actually getting at would be something like this. For God so loved the world that whoever entrusts himself to Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. That every person who's entrusting themselves to Jesus can be the beneficiaries of this gift I recently heard a story from someone who um, didn't grow up in the church, but they had moved into Christian circles, and they had heard over and over and over again about this good news that God loved the world, that he gave his son, that his son was a savior of sinners. But they never thought that it was for them. Until one day sitting in a van in college, someone personally asked, have you entrusted yourself to Jesus? Have you received Jesus? And then this person realized, oh, Jesus is for me. Jesus is for you. Will you receive him? Will you rest upon him? Will you live and not die?
And what if you won't? What if you won't receive this gift of love? Well, that would be pretty revealing, wouldn't it? If God gave such a great gift to meet such a great need, it would be revealing, revealing not just about who God is and His great love for us, but also revealing about who we are. So my final point is that God loves you and this is correct English, but it just sounds bad. Illuminatingly, or relevatorily, or my favorite, apocalyptically. See, if life without Jesus is a hell, if the fact that life without Jesus is hellish, if that, that fact is and leads to destruction, if that's an uncomfortable truth, there's actually a more uncomfortable truth in this passage. It's there in verse 19. And this is the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. You ever talking to someone and you get the sense that they're asking you and they they come to you like they want to be convinced, but you, you start talking to them and you realize, I'm not sure that you really want to be convinced. Maybe you've heard the story of the guy who walks into the psychiatrist's office and um, and he says, Doc, I got a problem. Doc's like, okay, what's your problem? He says, I'm dead. And the doc says, okay. And so he starts trying to like, convince him that he's not dead. And he says, no, I'm dead. And the doc's like trying to figure out. And he's like, what's going on here? And finally, I got it. The doc asks him, do dead men bleed? And the guy starts thinking to himself, and he says, like, no, I guess your blood's pumping if you're alive, and, and it stops pumping if you're dead. And you're, No, dead men don't bleed. And so then the doctor said, stick out your finger. He's very excited. Close your eyes. And he pricked his finger with a needle. And a little drop of blood starts coming out. And the doctor started laughing, and the guy started laughing. And the guy says, what do you know? I guess dead men do bleed. It's like the guy came in and, and he didn't want to be convinced. Even though he, he came like he wanted to be convinced, he was coming to the doctor, he thought that he wanted to be convinced, but at the end of the day, did he really want to be convinced? See, there's a glorious truth here. The glorious truth is that God did not send his son into the, condemn the world, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. It's a glorious truth, but there's also a terrifying truth here, and that's this. Even though God sent his son into the world to save it, we would rather have condemnation than salvation. See, we have to come to grips with the fact that there is something in us that prefers darkness over light, that doesn't actually want God's life. In John chapter 5, a few chapters later, Jesus is going to come up to a man who's crippled. He's been crippled for a long time. And he's going to ask him this question, do you want to be healed? And you think, well, who would say no? I don't know. 
I mean, a lot of us, we think, man, if I only had time to exercise and resources to exercise and money to exercise and all these things, then I would be in perfect shape. But then what happens? We like have this moment in our life, like a vacation or something like that, and we're given like time and money and all these other things where we can exercise. And what happens? We don't exercise. And we think, maybe I have to come to the uncomfortable truth that I don't want to exercise the way I think that I do. I don't want health the way that I think that I do. Or maybe you've seen those people. It's always like really sad. They're, they're outside. It's just always shocking to me. They're outside the cancer center smoking. Like choosing this thing that's going to destroy their lives and they know it. And they're at the cancer center and you're like, why? What is going That is us. When it says that God so loved the world, we have to understand what the world is in the Gospel of John. The world is a world that is set in hostile rebellion and in enmity with God. And that's the world that God loves. It's not a world that is so vast that it took such a great love to embrace it. It's a world that is so wicked that it took such a deep love to love it at all. Theologians talk about original sin. It's this the state of sin and disposition, this, this fundamental problem that we have as human beings where we are, we're, we're bent away from how we were meant to be. And the way in which original sin manifests itself is not first and foremost, not primarily, in the fact that we reject God's law or don't want to keep his law or something like that. No, much more fundamental than that, the original, original sin is the fact that we don't want to believe that God loves us and is generous and wants to give us good gifts. That was the original sin when Satan said, did God really say to Adam, God's not looking out for you. God's not really wanting your best. And over and over and over again, we don't want to be convinced that God loves us. This is the uncomfortable truth. And yet the glorious truth is that God knew all that. And he sent his son for you and me anyway. that he loves us in our stubborn rebellion, that he loves us in our refusal to believe and receive and embrace his love. So maybe today, maybe today, the wall might come down. You might open your hands and your heart and you might let God love you and believe God really does love you. He sent his only son to die and rise for you. And trust yourself to him. Let me pray for us.
God, only your love can break every barrier down. And so we pray that the love that sent the Son into the world to redeem the world would send the, send the Spirit into our hearts to convince us that you are generous and you are good and you love us. May we receive the gift of Jesus at his table. Prepare us to come as you give yourself to us there. Amen.